Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin. In San Diego, California today, Bob is still off on assignment, uh, but we have an exciting show for you today. We're going to be talking about the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, which is a, let's call it an intergovernmental forum for 21 nation economies in the Pacific Rim that promotes free trade through the Asia, throughout the Asia-Pacific re- uh, region and, you know, lots of other parts of the world, um, APEC, you know, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation for short, is in the process of negotiating a, a new trade deal called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And joining us today to talk about that is Will Wilchko, who is the director of the California Trade Justice Coalition. Uh, Will, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Thank you for having me, Scott. Yep. Uh, maybe we could kick off with a little bit, um, you know, just a you know, APEC is a, is a free trade forum. It's a transnational economic institution in some ways, something in the in the in the tradition of the World Trade Organization, the free trade area, the Americas. Uh, maybe maybe you could just actually talk a little bit about how APEC fits into the free trade trajectory that we've seen in the past 40 or 50 years. Yeah, so I think for a lot of folks, um, APEC kind of represents one another yet another neoliberal forum, right? Like it's a it's a forum in which world leaders and corporations essentially come together to talk about the world's problems. And I think the irony isn't lost on a lot of folks around this round of of the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum that a lot of the corporations who are coming to talk about the world's problems are corporations that have caused a lot of these problems, especially when it comes to to climate change. There's some of the worst uh, corporations out there. And, you know, with other forums and other avenues in which to to discuss these things, like, um, you know, you have like WTO, you have all of these other kind of avenues for for um and platforms for these these groups a lot of the things that people ask and a lot of f- things that folks on the ground ask themselves is well what about me like how am i represented here um and i think like like those things apec does not represent um the ordinary folks on the ground it's big deals big conversations being had in ordinary folks' names, but without actual representation from those folks. And and what that looks like a lot of the time, uh, and I think the thing that a lot of people can kind of understand um, pretty quickly is, is if you tie it into the fact that there's so many lobbyists at all of these things, right? Like there's, there's a ton of lobbyists, corporate lobbyists are all over um, these negotiating rounds, the corporate lobbyists are all over these like forums. It's just one of those things in which corporations have more of a say than than ordinary folks. And and what that leads to all too often is inequities when it comes to how trade policies are written, inequities when it comes to how laws are made, inequities when it comes to 
which policies and which um, mechanisms for combating things like climate change are actually uh, followed through on. And so, you know, it's it's alarming, I think. I think the more people find out about this, the more they get alarmed. And I think that that's rightfully like an, an important thing. You know, we're in this sort of moment in history that some have termed as a, a poly crisis, where we have a you know an economic crisis, and we have this widening wealth gap in the world. We have the rise of a, a far right, which actually opposes institutions and agreements like this. Uh, we have the climate crisis brought on by the fossil fuel economy and fossil fuel extraction and combustion, uh, and one of the uh, sort of narratives that the the free trade advocates have been putting out there since you know as, for as long as I as that I can know of when we think about like the North American Free Trade Agreement or the the WTO is that this is what's going to help improve the lives of ordinary people this is what's going to help environmental regulation the market will help in, improve these things and you know it hasn't as you as you just stated we actually see who it's truly benefiting but what sort of response has that led to you know through the, through this sort of trajectory of of uh this trajectory of of free trade um in in different parts of the world what has it what has been the sort of backlash against free trade look like yeah so i think it's it's important to note that you know they they have these solutions they peddle these solutions like nafta for instance the north american free trade agreement and they paint this rosy picture all all too often where they say oh this is going to solve all the problems you like ordinary folks, this is going to solve your problems. You just need to shut up and let us make a deal in your name um, and, and not be part of the process. Right. And so I think at first some folks were like, OK, well, let's see what happens here with with NAFTA. But a lot of folks did know off the bat that that is a recipe for disaster when you have people who are so disconnected from what it is like to lead um, a regular life here in the United States and in other countries, what it's like to be a, a normal person and not just a policy wonk in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, it's a it's a recipe for for complete disaster. And so there's been this opposition over the decades to these so-called free trade deals, because what a lot of folks have noticed is they're written a lot of times by lobbyists for lobbyists, right? Like they are able to have a seat at the table in ways that no one else um, can have a seat at the table. And and so, you know, with NAFTA, there was massive opposition in the 90s. I I am, uh, you know, I'm, I was probably like three years old when, when NAFTA happened, but I work with a lot of folks who were um, in that fight. And, and a lot of the work that I do today was kind of born out of that movement to oppose NAFTA. And then, you know, in 1999, this huge, amazing coalition formed to, to oppose the WTO during the Battle of Seattle. And our work, the work that the California Trade Justice Coalition and all these other coalitions in other states do is, has been kind of born out of those coalitions that formed then. And so you've had over the years, massive, massive coalitions kind of form cross sector. You know, you have labor unions, you have environmental groups, you have human rights, family farmers, uh, consumer advocacy groups who've all kind of come together to oppose trade policies that put profits, corporate profits for the 1% over everything else, including over you know, um, 
workers' rights, including over the environment. Um, you know, there have been these these huge movements historically over the years that have really kind of spearheaded, you know, the fight against these these so-called uh, free trade deals. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a really important thing that I think continues on to this day and that, you know, will continue to to be a huge factor. You know, you know, when the WTO happened in 1999, it was a huge inspiration for me. It's it's actually what sort of got me into organizing and what got me into activism and an inspiration for a lot of the people who organized the battle in Seattle, that sort of bigger coalition, particularly a lot of grassroots people and people who are left of center and anarchists and, and earth firsters and things like that was actually the uprising that happened in 1994 in uh, in Chiapas with the, with the Zapatistas, which in the media at the time was framed as an indigenous uprising. But in, in what it really was, was communities uprising against the impacts of NAFTA on their communities. They actually, I, I believe the day that they rose up was the day that NAFTA went into effect on mm. January 1st, 1994. And it was just sort of like real powerful moment. So it's also community rights, which are being washed away by, you know, corporate free trade deals. Uh, yeah. And then, and then, you know, in, in your own personal background, you you got more involved in the in the free trade fights around the the Trans Pacific Partnership, uh, which was a precursor to APEC, or excuse me, not a precursor to IPEF. Um, and we're going to get into what IPEF is in a minute. But can you tell us about TPP a little bit first, and and your own involvement? Yeah. So after um, graduate school, I I started work on I was working on the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, the presidential campaign in in twenty sixteen, um, and then. From there, I kind of ended up doing this job or a version of this job where I was the lead organizer for the state of California um, opposing the Trans-Pacific Partnership or building opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, amongst members of Congress here. And, you know, to that that trade deal was basically, uh, as we called it, NAFTA on steroids, right? Like it, it had so many giveaways for big corporations. It had... Um, it locked in. It would have locked in these patent monopolies for big pharma. Um, it just would have caused immense devastation on a scale that we had never seen before. And so, what that fight was about was really about. Um, it was a continuation in a lot of ways of the the fight against um, these these kind of free trade deals, right? Like it. It was a fight that brought a lot of folks together from all kinds of different sectors and spaces um, to, to really push members of Congress and push this country um, away from, you know, the, the beaten path, which was, you know, just blindly supporting these neoliberal trade deals. And so it was a very successful campaign in a lot of ways. Like every presidential candidate came out against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, ultimately. Um, you know, Donald Trump... When he took office, he claims he killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but when, but that's that's a lie, right? Like he actually You would never expect Trump to lie. I just wanna I just wanna yeah, say Yeah, no, it never but but basically he, like he never hit in a bunker either. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, not not the bunker. But yeah, he essentially took credit for the work that working people did when he said he killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's like his specialty, taking credit for work that actual working people have done. And so what happened was like we had built opposition throughout the country to the Trans-Pacific Partnership so that there were not enough representatives to support this thing. Like 
representatives had been coming out kind of left and right against the Trans-Pacific Partnership before he got elected, before he took office, so that they did not have the votes necessary to, to pass this, this thing. And, you know, there was even talk when he was president that he was going to try to get back into the TPP, um, that he was looking into maybe seeing if it was somehow beneficial uh, to him. And so, you know, this is something that I think was a result of the pain of NAFTA. A lot of the pain that NAFTA caused for working people in the United States is still felt to this day, right? Like, I think when I was in Virginia working for Bernie Sanders, um, I met a lot of folks who were from these small towns like Martinsville, Virginia, for instance. And, and I had this volunteer there who um, told me about how nice his town used to be. He said, you really should have seen it. We were this great little town. Uh, he's like before NAFTA happened. And I felt the pain in his voice when he told me about that. And I didn't really, you know, if you are in academics, you don't really get into the effects of NAFTA as much as you should. And you don't really see people, um, a lot of times you could feel distance from people's pain until you you hear their stories up close and personal. And I remember kind of feeling his pain around that. And and he said that he, had, he was supporting uh, Bernie Sanders because Bernie was against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And that to him was was NAFTA, was the new NAFTA. And so, you know, that pain still exists today within a lot of working people. A lot of people have felt the impacts of NAFTA. You know, one point, what, two million Mexican family farmers lost their livelihoods like almost overnight because of NAFTA. Um, you have so much pain from that. And, and what's, I think, tough a lot is that we have this pain a lot of us as working people um as folks on the ground we have this pain from the fact that these neoliberal policies have just steamrolled our rights um and you know there's a there's always the question when you have pain like what do you do with it like do you just you feel the pain but is there a constructive way is there an outlet for that and the outlet for that was fighting against the Trans-Pacific Partnership for a lot of folks. And that's how we did it. Like we overcame billions of dollars in corporate lobbyist money to really oppose this thing and get Congress members throughout the country to come out in opposition of it. And that that's something that I've always found inspiring about this work is that even when you're up against billion dollar lobbyists, like if you have compelling stories and you have real stories and real people behind your movement and not just empty talking points written by like chat GPT or something, then you could really build momentum to, to advocate and to fight for things um, that, you know, nobody can, like we could build momentum on a level that no corporation can. And so I think that that, that was the lesson of the Trans-Pacific Partnership for me was that when we work together and when we fight together, we win. And so, you know, that's 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 what I hope we um, take into the work that we're doing now on on APEC and, and IPEF is that there's so many people that are working together on this. And, and I'm, I know we'll talk about this a little bit more, but there's so many amazing different groups who are coming into these organizing spaces with experiences, with their own um, devastating impacts from like what neoliberal policies have done to them 
that you know we have the makings of a, a really big powerful movement here you know maybe, maybe that's a I, I, one I want to say that's a, a very powerful story about the guy in, in Martinsville and how you know that you know those stories and that energy and that reality on the ground has like sort of been able we've been able to channel that into fight against some of these you know trade deals and corporations on in the, you know the work I do it's around communities which are impacted by fossil fuel extraction or you know climate change or what have you um and you know moving into what we're going to talk about next is we're now in the process of organizing and, and channeling you know similar similar energy into fighting um APEC and IPEF. And maybe we could just start off a little bit about kind of telling our audience a little bit about what IPEF is in particular. And then we'll also get into a little bit more specifics on APEC. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's really important. And one thing I wanted to note about Martinsville was after I talked to him that day about Martinsville, I looked it up online. I looked up Martinsville, Virginia, and the first article was third world in the United States, Martinsville, right. Virginia. It, right. It sat with me. Um, I'll, I'll say I, I don't typically like to speak for him, but my co-host Bob Bizenko is actually from Youngstown, Ohio, and mm. uh, which is a town that has also been gutted by free trade, free trade agreements over the over the decades, and often has has many stories like that. And many of the people he talks to are like people who either voted, they you know supported Sanders, and then when Sanders was out, they supported Trump because Trump dishonestly, however, like you know. Talk, spoke to those people's pain and and talked about the the free trade agreements of the Clintons and the Obamas, et cetera. Mm. Yeah, no, that pain is real, and that if to ignore that pain is just a, a huge mistake. But but and also also bad for people like Trump to to you know exploit it. Yeah, no, I mean it's 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 still there. Like that pain has not gone away over the years. People are still feeling that pain and still reeling from the impacts of NAFTA. And you have politicians and elected officials who for decades have been saying, oh, this was a great thing. This helped us so much. And it's like you lost your job. You're not going to you're going to know this didn't help your factory. Help. Your factory closed and shipped overseas. The work was shipped overseas. Yeah. And and I think the thing that that's important is like your job gets shipped overseas, but it's not like the folks in the other countries have it good either. It's often shipped to a place where people are paid starvation wages. Right. And so. You know, it's really, I think the work that we've done that really distinguishes us from like, you know, some of the the nationalist language out there is that we're talking about working people all over the world versus the 1%. Because it's not like working people in, in Mexico benefited from NAFTA. Like the, this destroyed their livelihoods just as much, if not even more than it destroyed folks' livelihoods here. And so, you know, it's, it's really... Um, a trap that is set by a lot of folks on the right to to pit working people against each other in these spaces. And I think that that's what, what's so important to kind of distinguish. But I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about um, IPEF here. And so one of the like most concrete things that the Biden administration wants to announce at APEC is something called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which goes by the acronym IPEF. So this actually has a lot of the same, probably, I think I, I need to check it, but I'm pretty sure it's most of the same TPP countries. It's another 
trade agreement, essentially, with the same countries that would have been in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, you know, this this will set binding rules governing approximately 40% of the global economy. It'll also become the framework for subsequent trade pacts. And so this is kind of what NAFTA did in the 90s. It became a framework for all these other trade agreements. Um, and, you know, the, it was a bad trade agreement. So if that's your framework for other trade agreements, then a lot of people are going to feel pain. But, um, you know, IPEF will have major impacts on climate policy, workers' rights, and more for decades to come. And so, you know, historically, with very few exceptions, the rules written into U.S. trade agreements have benefited big corporations at the expense of working people. Um, it's benefited big corporations at the expense of family farmers, consumers, and the environment, both here in the United States and abroad. Um, trade deals have helped big pharma expand their monopolies and jack up medicine prices. They've helped big ag undermine food safety and consumer right to know regulations. They've helped Wall Street dismantle financial regulations. You know, big tech right now is trying to use trade rules to attack consumer privacy and AI accountability. And a wide range of corporations have used trade rules to shift good paying jobs around the globe to wherever workers are most exploited and where environmental regulations are the weakest, right? And on top of that, big oil, big gas, um, big coal and other extractive industries have been granted special powers within trade agreements to attack the environmental movement's climate victories. So one example that I think uh, will resonate a lot with you, Scott, is at this very moment, a company called TransCanada has a $15 billion trade. It's actually TS Energy now is what it's called. TS Energy. TC Energy. TC Energy. TC. Yeah, TC Energy. Uh, $15 billion trade challenge against the United States over the Biden administration's refusal to grant it permits for the Keystone XL pipeline. You know, another company has a suit against Quebec's decision to ban fracking under the St. Lawrence River. Mm -hmm. it just goes on and on, essentially. It's it's like this is written into trade policies that they're allowed to challenge um, any kind of environmental regulation. When we talk about so when we talk about trade attacks on on climate, which is actually a, a, I believe a demand of of at least part of the new APEC coalition, that this is what we're talking about, correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, recent example with the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know, unfortunately, is is probably uh, thus far the most ambitious climate legislation the U.S. has ever passed. Um, you know, obviously, it's not nearly enough to prevent climate catastrophe. Um, but right now, its climate uh, provisions are being threatened by trade attacks by multiple countries. Um, and the Biden administration is spending huge amounts of time and money trying to deal with those trade attacks. Mm. So, yeah, it's it's just like constant. And it makes it so that any environmental victory that we have is temporary or up for um, attack, essentially. And it, you know, a lot of people say, well, it's the United States, like the United States can do whatever it wants. Like it doesn't really have to abide by these trade deals that it sets. These, these, these agreements are just set to help U.S. corporations. But that's mm -hmm. not true. We're being sued for $15 billion right now. And there's a good chance that we'll lose money over that. But this happens in other countries and they're forced to pay like tons and tons of money 
because of these lawsuits and it undermines any attempts to combat climate change or any attempts to regulate some of these industries. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's really scary. Uh, it's, you know, trade deals in the past have almost always been awful, right? Like by putting stuff like this in there, it's horrible for the planet, horrible for working people. And, you know, what's kind of funny is I'll, I'll meet with Congress members and uh, one Congress member uh, who shall remain nameless. Um, I still remember talking to him about this and he was like, it's like, oh man, like how did this get into NAFTA? Like the investor state dispute settlement system. Like how how is something like this like possible for corporations to sue for unlimited sums of uh, money? And then, you know, a few months ago, that same congressman signed a letter in support of an ISDS lawsuit against a, a you know, country in South America. Uh, like he, he signed it for a corporation, uh, Basically, it was a corporate written letter. And it's like, come on, like, didn't we have this conversation? Don't you realize this is bad? Hey, folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast, where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like Johnny Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, And we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcasts. And uh, we talk to really cool people uh, about really important issues. Um, Follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds, uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. And so, what are the what is the likelihood of IPEF going into effect? Is it, you know, are, are we getting close to it? Is the you know the U.S. Congress currently is in complete chaos, at least on the Republican side? Uh, and so, I'm I'm wondering what the what the uh, what the possibilities are of IPEF actually being ratified, at least in the U.S. So they're saying this isn't a normal trade deal and it doesn't have to go through Congress. That's been their argument around IPEF. Awesome. Whole, that's of course time. they are. Yeah, that's that's been what they've been saying the whole time. Um, and so there have been multiple rounds of negotiating around IPEF, but climate activists, working people have not been represented in that negotiating process. It's not transparent at all. Um, it hasn't been transparent in any way or accessible to people but they have released some text. Um, so if you look at some of the text proposed for IPEF so far, uh, it includes no environmental standards whatsoever and no environmental enforcement tools and doesn't mention climate change. Um, so I have some some specifics on the text that was released uh, for just one part of IPEF, not the whole thing, but that one part was on global supply change, chains, um, you know, which you would think would have a lot to do with climate change. Um, 
we need better supply chains to transition to a clean energy economy, and we need more resilient supply chains to survive ongoing climate emergencies, right? But they don't mention climate change. And to not mention climate change when creating an agreement on supply chains uh, like this that could be in place for the next 20, 30, 40 years, it just reeks of climate denialism. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's just... it's ridiculous. You can't keep doing this. You can't keep punting the ball, you know, down the field, like, and just like, Oh, another generation will deal with this. Another mm-hmm. generation will deal with, with that. You know, and just, just shifting to the, to the apex summit, which is going to happen in November. It's, it's a platform where we'll see, like literally see the CEO of Exxon as one of the featured speakers the CEO of uh, Darren Wood, the CEO of Citibank, who Jane Frazier, who is the, the second largest funder of fossil fuels in the world, is one of the featured speakers. And then we have, you know, 20 or 21 heads of state who are going to be there and, you know, all in this platform together from Biden to Xi Jinping to, you know, the, the prime ministers of Canada and Australia and Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And so, it's also a little bit of a, just a, a sort of slap in the face for how it's this forum for what I would call the billionaire class and their and their you know obedient servants to just be able to hang out and you know sign away divvy up the global economy as they see fit. I know I know that the summit's a little bit different than the negotiations for IPEF, but still, so it's just it's just what it reeks of. Yeah, I mean it. It's just you know right now it seems like IPEF is going to do nothing to tackle the climate catastrophe we're facing and it's clear from who's invited to this this apec um forum that they're not and and based on the fact that ipef is supposed to be their crown jewel of, of this this whole forum that the apec leaders are not taking the climate crisis seriously right california's burning you've got hawaii burning global south is continuing to bear the consequences of inaction and you know, my generation is going to continue to bear those consequences and generations after me are going to continue to to suffer because of this. And so APEC leaders are just opting to promote more policies that greenwash and hide devastatingly irresponsible backdoor deals um, with multinational corporations who seek to exploit our planet for profit, right? You know, they want to smile, they want to shake hands, they want to slap each other on the back, all these leaders and all these CEOs do and, and act like they're doing stuff on climate change, but they're not. They're mm-hmm. they're just barely paying lip service to it. And they're not even mentioning climate change in this huge crown jewel uh trade policy that they're they're trying to to sign there. You know, maybe maybe this is a good moment to to shift to some of the organizing that's happening around November. Um, you know, we can call it the maybe maybe we'll get lucky and call it the Battle of San Francisco. Uh, but um, maybe can you can you give us a little bit of the background of of the NOTA APEC coalition? You know what the what some of the organizing is looking like right now? Yeah, so there's there's a lot of different contingents of organizing that. that I think it's like a 95 plus group coalition at this point, which is huge. Yeah, I think that's the NOTA. The NOTA APEC coalition has about 95 groups in it. Um, a lot of that work has been happening in the last uh, several months. It's, it's primarily led by the International League of People's Struggle, I believe. Um, and they're kind of tackling it from the, 
the angle of essentially, you know, like it's it's an umbrella, but it's also like a lot of it is is anti-imperialism. Um, and, and so I think that, that that is an important angle, especially when you got some of these, the countries here who have some of the worst records on human rights and labor mm-hmm. rights that you can imagine. I think that that's, you know, critical here to the to the conversation. But then there's also a climate contingent, which is what we're part of, Scott. And that has a decent, I think almost 50 uh climate organizations too. So it's like almost 150 organizations are coming together under this to to try to oppose um you know business as usual here and 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 oppose you know the lack of like actual policies here that are coming out and, and also just like the neoliberalism of of this whole thing right you know i think it, that it seems to be like you know one part neoliberalism one part militarism or imperialism however you want to call it and then yeah. and then one part around the uh, around the climate around the climate crisis and and lots of lots of other issues at play it's a movement of movements moment for sure Right. Yeah. And I think that for the on the climate front, for sure, um, you know, we're all concerned about greenwashing and lack of climate justice in APEC talks as well as in IPEF. Um, but we also want to make sure that if an IPEF deal does happen, uh, especially if it's going to be the framework for subsequent trade deals, we want to make sure that any final pack prevents trade attacks on climate measures, um, whether through IPEF itself or through other existing trade and investment uh Packs, you know, dismantling the rules that enable trade attacks on climate action is so important, and we want to push something called the Climate Peace Clause to to stop that from happening. Um, but we also need binding climate standards with strong enforcement tools to get countries, starting with the United States, to meet and exceed um, their Paris climate obligations at, at a minimum. Right? Yeah. Like it's it's just something that is so critical and so essential. And and I think that all these groups are coming together around different issues because there's so many things that are just, that should just be the minimum that aren't even being discussed right now, right? Instead, we have these photo ops with world leaders who pretend to take action, but instead just let, you know, continued devastation hit all of our communities. And so we have this broad coalition. We have these kind of, um, kind of side like other coalitions forming as well, and other other movements kind of coming together. And this is, as you said, like a real turning point, I think, in um, the way that people react to neoliberal trade policies and neoliberal policies. It's something that I think is is needed. Like at every stage, we constantly need to organize around these these things. I I also I also want to just you know just to kind of touch on this briefly is that you know there's there's also an element around the local here which is in in many ways san francisco is a city which has become like a neoliberal mecca we've seen like gentrification rising rents war on you know definitely war on homeless people but also like war on working people getting pushed out of the area um, and we've seen big, we've seen tax breaks to big corporations, particularly big tech, to be able to set up their offices in, you know, in along Market Street in San Francisco. And so the San Francisco mayor, London Breed, is, you know, San Francisco has a little bit of a, a bad reputation in the U.S. media right now, and, and she's trying to improve that. But part of the way she's doing that is just like increasing this sort of neoliberal image. 
And of course, the main way in which you enforce that neoliberal image is you put a lot more money into like police budgets. And there's something like $10 million for going into like police budgets for security just around APEC. Yeah. I mean, big tech is one of the biggest groups right now that's trying to influence IPEF. They've been trying at every stage to put things in it for themselves. Um, you know, there's this this idea in San Francisco that big tech is going to save us. Like big tech is, is the solution, but I was born in San Francisco and, you know, over the decades, I've seen big tech carve out San Francisco and hollow it out, push through gentrification, all these artist communities out and essentially turn it into what it is today, which is a shell of its, of its past. Um, and so I always find it personally frustrating when politicians just immediately try to cater to to big tech interests. And you know, that's that's one of the things that's that's really happening here, right? Like that's that's what's happening with the state of San Francisco politics today. Like it it's just all about like catering to big tech um and you know, downplaying the issues that are actually happening. You know, containing this, the doing its best to contain the the social problems of the of the city, right? Yeah, like, it's like, but those are caused by big tech, right? Like, those yeah. are a result of what big tech has done to this city. And you know, I I grew up like I I didn't grow up in San Francisco. I grew up in in like the Monterey area, and you know, I used to always dream of coming back um in college or after college and moving to san francisco and it's just been unaffordable right like i i remember realizing that oh i would need eight roommates to be able to live in san francisco uh, after college like this is or get in on some good rent control which they're trying to do away with yeah yeah and and so it's it's just it's it's really sad and you know i think that all too often the city's policies, and this is my personal opinion, it's not my organization's opinion, um, but I I think that the city's policies have all too often just been about catering to these big corporations and these big corporate interests who abandoned San Francisco as soon as the pandemic happened. Like, I don't think people remember mm -hmm. that. Like, they don't care about, they. it's about profit. That's how it always works. That's how multinational corporations operate. Like people think that they have social values, these corporations, but they never really do. It's all about profit. Like if, if profit gets in the way of um, any purported social value, they will drop that social value or downplay or, you know, do what they can to not really act on it if they can maximize their profits because they're accountable to their shareholders, not the people. And so I think it's, pathetic and annoying like every time someone acts like corporations are going to come in and do social good because they have failed time and time again and we have so many examples of them coming in and failing us and so you know this apec um forum for a lot of folks just represents another attempt to cater to multinational corporations and it's not it's like the city of san francisco's catering to these corporations by like you know, displacing people and putting money in, even though we have this like huge budget deficit, we're putting tens of millions of dollars into this thing, like putting money into that. And then we're, we're our world leaders are catering to these multinational corporations. And it's so like, is, so, is these, Gavin, so is Gavin Newsom as well. It's like, aren't these the multinational corporations that 
literally funded fake papers from like academics to discredit climate change like don't we remember that these are the same corporations that did that and we're going to act like they changed like it's like you know it's it's like some of the worst corporations in history when it comes to climate denialism and we are catering to them through this event and it's embarrassing and it's also shameful that these are the leaders who claim to represent us and it's worse because you know in ipef this is a deal being written in our names right like these Mm -hmm. trade policies people often forget and and i think that's the trap that they that a lot of folks want uh ordinary people to feel is that they don't have a say like you're not an expert you shouldn't have a say in how this trade policy is done but you do have this you should have a say because you feel the impacts of it and you are a person in whose name this thing is being done. And so much is being done by our country, by our governments, in our names that none of us agree with, right? Like, or most of us don't agree with. And so I think that's something that uh, is also outrageous about about this this forum and about IPEF in general, is that like all of this is being done in our names and we're not even allowed a seat at the table. Like mm-hmm. that is untenable, That that's not democracy. You know, that's that's oligarchy, right? Like that's no. that's complete oligarchy. And so, you know, it's it's something that I think resonates with a lot of folks because a lot of people have been organizing around the the city of, of San Francisco catering to to APEC folks around this and, and putting all this money in. And I think it's an interesting um point to organize around, but it's thematically uh the same as what we're arguing against. IPEF and, and APEC leaders, it's like it's about multinational corporations being allowed in and ordinary people being shut out. And that. Yeah, absolutely. Big. And so uh, just the the sort of my sort of wrap up question then is, you know, as ordinary people, even ordinary San Franciscans, which are being, you know, shut out where when do they need to start showing up? When when are we going to be doing things for them to show up and you know voice their opposition and their resistance to this. So there's there's a lot of actions that are going to be happening um, in November. Uh, there's Let's just hit some be- of the big ones. We can hit some of the big ones. Yeah. So I, I could say that there we're we're doing a, a workshop at UC Berkeley on the eighth, um, and it's 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 basically kind of a workshop on climate. November eighth. November. 8th. Yeah, November eighth. It'll be an intergenerational workshop. Um, folks are invited to that. They can find out more at uh, bayclimateaction.com. Um, but there's going to be a lot more. So on Saturday, the 11th, I know there's going to be a counter summit that the NOTA APEC coalition is doing. We're going to definitely be doing a panel there. Um, and that's November 11th on Saturday. And then Sunday, there's going to be um, a rally. And we're hoping to get folks out to that, especially in the climate contingent. But then on the 15th of November, there will definitely be um, some kinds of different kinds of actions from a broad range of organizations, from labor unions to climate organizations to, um, you know, folks. No to APEC coalition. coalition. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's going to be this huge, there's going to be a lot that happens on the 15th. Um, And so the way, the best way to kind of find out about that stuff is. And and just so folks know, the 15th is the, 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 the big day of the CEO summit. One of the, the first, the first big day of the CEO summit, the Apex CEO summit. So we plan to be in the streets for that on November fifteenth, early in the morning. Yeah. So there, there's just a lot that that will be happening around this, and 
you know, I think that this is a huge opportunity um, for folks to really kind of come together and, and show that they uh, won't stand this like continued, you know, neoliberal catering. And, you know, Will, you co-hosted a, a pretty powerful webinar the other night for on APEC and climate justice. And I'm hoping to be able to actually share that video or maybe some clips of that video on the Green and Red YouTube platform. So folks should definitely keep an eye out for that. And it's all the reason to come and get involved. And like Will said, bayclimateaction.com is a is a definitely is a place to check out to plug in and get involved and come um resist APEC with us. Yeah, no, it's it's I think it's it's gonna be this huge opportunity for all these different organizations to come together and all all of us as people to really express you know, our dissatisfaction with the status quo, right? Because it, it's untenable. It's not something that can continue as it is. And we're in such an emergency on so many different fronts, but especially on climate. It's it's really heartbreaking to see the images that come out month after month from different parts of the world. Um, and it's just embarrassing that our leaders are coming together to not really address that. And, and so... You know, we really need to make our voices heard. We need to make sure that we come together and tell our stories and, and make sure that regular folks are centered in any negotiations and any development of policy. Because, you know, when we work together, when we fight together, we win together. And this is a huge opportunity to have a huge victory together and, and really build something um, new and, and something amazing that that'll hopefully continue to organize and operate together for for the years to come. Yep. Folks, you have been listening to Will Wiltschko, the my comrade, my friend and comrade, Will, uh, director of the California Trade Justice Coalition, talking about APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation, talking about talking about IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, and talking a lot about the organizing that's going to be happening uh, in about a month, the week of November 11th, the 15th, the 11th, 12th, and 15th, resisting APEC and, and the and the huge summit which they are um, having in the in the middle of downtown San Francisco in, in the south of Market area. So if you want to get involved, check out BayClimateAction.com. And or you can just email the Green and Red podcast, and we're help happy to plug you in. And we will um, um, be talking to y'all then. We'll probably be doing more shows about APEC. Uh, so it's a it's a big it's a big thing that we want to be talking about a lot because this is a big moment, a movement of movement moments. Um, and folks, if you like what you're hearing, check out the Green and Red podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening to this on one of the many audio platforms we're on, give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And if you really like the Green and Red podcast, uh, go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button or become a patron at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Will, it's been good talking with you. Do you have one last thing to say? Were you going to say show something out there? I thought you were going to say something. Oh, um, I, I just want to say that I'm really excited to hear from folks who've been listening to this podcast. I want to organize with you. I want to meet you. And I, I truly believe that you know, we are building something great here. I, I'm 100% with you on that. Um, 
folks, everyone else, you know, misbehave, come misbehave in San Francisco at APEC and uh, make trouble. And we'll talk to you all again real soon. Ask why are we angry? I say, look at history. The cause of all our troubles, it is not a mystery. There are those whose lives are easy. There are those whose lives are rough. Now is the time for us to rise and cry out. Enough is enough. Borders, enough nations, enough corporate exploitation, enough racist air pollution, enough racist institutions, enough chains and enough cages, and enough starvation wages, enough highways and gas stations, enough control by corporations. We won't take it anymore. Yeah, this is class war. We'll fight you in the streets. We will dance in your defeat. Yeah.